Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, Hunting the Unabomber. On April 3, 1996, a team of FBI agents closed in on an isolated cabin in remote Montana, marking the end of the longest and most expensive investigation in FBI history. The cabin's lone inhabitant was a former mathematics prodigy and Winterkind professor who had abandoned society decades earlier. Few people knew his name, Theodore Kaczynski, but everyone knew the mayhem and death associated with his nickname, the Unabomber. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome Lise Wheel to the Murder Most Foul podcast. Ms. Wheel is a New York Times bestselling author, and she's here today to discuss her latest book, Hunting the Unabomber, the FBI, Ted Kaczynski, and the Capture of America's Most Notorious Domestic Terrorists. Welcome, Lise. Uh, before we begin, why don't you give us uh, the story of your life in, oh, say, 60 seconds? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, I can try to keep it shorter than that. I'm a third-generation federal prosecutor, my grandfather, my father, and then me. And my father was also an FBI agent. So I grew up uh, sort of surrounded by law. And my mother, who immigrated from Denmark, was an English teacher. So between the grammarian of my mother's side and the law enforcement of my father's side, I think I was doomed to go into law enforcement and then probably also doomed to write murder mysteries and law crime books. So it's no surprise that after writing um, murder crime books, I turned to a hunting series. And seriously, some of my first memories were of my father and the FBI showing me wanted posters, you know, the most wanted posters that you see, uh, they still are around, of the FBI's most wanted and looking up as a little girl, you know, knee high to a grasshopper, up at those wanted posters and my father saying, you know, it takes brave men, because they were all men in the FBI at that point, to hunt these, these bad guys down. So all these years later that I'm writing a series called The Hunting Series is actually no surprise to me. A, psychi a psychiatrist or psychologist would say, oh my gosh, she's boring, you know, next. <laughs> That's not, nothing to figure out there. Now, you've written um, other books, crime thrillers, and one might uh, pick up the Unabomber and assume it was a uh, dry uh, historical document, whereas clearly it is not. Um, it is really a true crime thriller of the, the, the years-long uh, battle of wits between the FBI and the brilliant but criminally insane Ted Kaczynski. If I can borrow from a review, uh, it states a powerful dual narrative of the unfolding investigation in the life of Ted Kaczynski. The action progresses with drama and nail-biting intensity. The conclusion 
foregone, yet nonetheless compelling, a true crime masterpiece. Uh, I read the book at one sitting, and I have to agree wholeheartedly. I wanted to write it as a thriller, and in a thriller-esque way. And as you mentioned, I have published a lot of mysteries. So I want my reader to be picking it up and reading it as sort of a, a mystery and a thriller and a whodunit, even though we know whodunit. But when you're, it, it, I wanted, the hope was that as you're reading it, you're, you're getting caught up in the chase and the hunt as per the perspective of the FBI. And that was, I guess, my real intent was to get into the nitty gritty of what really happened in that hunt. Because for all the things that have been written about the Unabomber and Kaczynski, there wasn't, there, before this book, a real true account of the history of the actual walkthrough of what the FBI actually did. And I was so fortunate I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back on this one. I was so fortunate to have the sources. And by that, I mean the people who were actually involved in the hunt come forward and talk to me and say, you know, there are a lot of things that have been written out there or documentaries, one, one in particular that was done, that was just plumb wrong but just plumb wrong, got major things inaccurate and inaccurately told. And that's not right. And the American public for such a big case shouldn't get those facts wrong and be, shouldn't be going to sleep at night, you know, thinking that that's how it really happened. And one source in particular uh, Patrick Webb, who really is sort of the weave through in the narrative, you know, said, yeah, Lisa, I'll work with you on this book because I want to set the record straight and tell the real story of the hunt for the Unabomber. And one of the uh, major uh, frustrations from the FBI, aside from Kaczynski himself, was the uh, structure of the federal government and the investigative agencies. Uh, you had the FBI, you had ATF, you had the uh, Postal Service, because, of course, uh, some of the bombs were mailed. And these agencies at that time didn't share information. There was, you know, turf wars, etc. And so, obviously, there was duplicating of uh, effort that wasn't uh, being very productive. You had state agencies because this was a, this happened in di many different states. And by this, I mean the bombs exploding in different states. And you, you had bombs exploding in different states. So you had states, state jurisdictions. You had people dying. So then you had local jurisdictions, you know, murders. You had bombings. You had an air. You had an airplane. Airplane exploding. So that was a different jurisdiction. Federal jurisdictions who may or may not speak to each other. I mean, we have nine eleven, as we know, FBI and CIA did not speak with each other. Okay, so you had all those different jurisdictions communicating or lack thereof that really uh, hampered the investigation at many different levels. And one of the things that came out in the Unibom long-term investigation was both the problematic um, situations that occurred because of this lack of communication and some of the methodology 
that was enhanced because of the Unibom investigation that is still being used today and actually helped the FBI and other, and other agencies. So one of the things that, you know, people say, well, the FBI didn't really solve it. It was really um, other things that came in, not the FBI that solved it. We can talk about, you know, that. And that's true. Um, and but for some of the moves that the FBI made after the manifesto was published, then yeah. uh, that's all true. But what I want to remind people is uh, that I didn't know when I got into this is that one of the, the overlays is that the FBI and other agencies adopted things that they learned from the hunt and from the lessons that they learned from, and mistakes that they learned. It's so funny when you, when you pick a subject, like I picked the Unabomber. Um, I published, my publisher is wonderful. Um, you know, Harper Collins, Thomas Nelson. We came up with a series and did, I did Charles Manson first. And then, you know, they turned to me and they, they pretty much say, well, what do you want to pick as your next subject? And I picked the Unabomber. Uh, for various reasons, but one of them was it just he's just seemed to me such a fascinating subject because he's socially relevant today. You know, he's sort of a moniker. You know, you hear Unabomber. You know, he's like the Unabomber. My twenty-some-year-olds who you know could obviously were thinking you know they were little munchkins. You know, they know what Unabomber means, and it could just mean to them. Uh, uh, the, the you know the the face in the profile of you know the your iconic profile and maybe they might know guy in a cabin and certainly the bombs so that's all they know but they but the fact that they still know who the Unabomber was all these years later tells me about social relevance and that's important I I didn't want to just write about some guy that killed a bunch of people because if I'm going to put you know two three years of my life of research and investment and writing and all of that thinking and putting my mindset into doing a book like this. I want it to be something that has a larger social relevance than just the acts themselves. But what I didn't realize when I got into this is how, how much relevance he really had in that, in that the FBI is still using some of the very techniques that they learned from the mistakes they made. Now, I'm old enough to have uh, lived through the original case, uh, but for all those uh, whippersnappers out there who might be listening and uh, don't know the case as well as we do, why don't you uh, explain uh, where the moniker Unabomber um, came from? Well, this was the moniker that the FBI adopted because universities, right? He targeted universities and that's kind of interesting because he was a very, I speak in the past tense, he is a very learned man, having been educated at Harvard um, at the age of 16 when he went there. So universities and airplanes, he targeted an airplane. So Unabomber uh, uh, is how they created the Unabomber moniker. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know it was one individual. It could have been a they, he, he said, he sort of called himself FC. That could have been a group of people. It could have been a woman. It could have been a man. They didn't know who he was. So they needed a moniker for a place setting for the task force. And then, so they said, you not bomber. 
since his targets were so um, were so different, although they did fit into a couple of categories. And uh, in the beginning, he never, you know, left notes, uh, even, you know, having some kind of a political screed as to, you know, why he was doing what he was doing. So I'm sure it made it tough for the FBI even to get started as to like, what are they looking for? Well, the that was part of it is that the, the first of all, what you look for when you're trying to profile or, you know, find somebody is you look for motive and there didn't seem to be any, there, the motive wasn't there. I mean, it wasn't, there was no ransom, no, you know, it wasn't money. And then, right. The targets were so disparate. Um, the universities, it, it maybe if you look back, could have made sense because they were, you know, maybe targeting science and scientific, you know, folks. Um, but right. Why, why, you know, an airline, uh, to kill a bunch of people, to, to make a big mark. Now, fortunately, the bomb made a tiny little explosion and nobody was hurt. And think, you know, think he, he, that was earlier on and he was not doing very, very well, in quotes, <laughs> with his bombs. He hadn't gotten, you know, he hadn't really perfected his bombs. But that, that was just to kill a bunch of people. I mean, as simple as that. So his, his targeting was, if you tried to profile him, as Kathy Buck, Puckett did, who was the profiler in the case, was very, very difficult to do because there was no seemingly motive and there was no seeming uh, strand, you know, Congress strand in the, uh, in the targets. So you're right. I mean, that was a real big problem. And the other problem, of course, is that, you know, the, the mechanics, the actual things that he used, the bombs, uh, the other thing you try to do is try to trace the bombs. But the, because he was using, you know, things from junk piles, I mean, um, literally junk piles, that he would go out and find in, you know, this outside his cabin in Montana, and he would strip down the batteries, strip down everything, strip down, you know, strip it down. He wouldn't go to your Radio Shack, for example, to go buy them, so they couldn't trace them back to the, you know, the manufacturer. The FBI couldn't trace them back. They'd send all the stuff to the lab. Lab couldn't trace anything because he would just be getting them from junk piles. There was so there was no tr traceable device either. He was that smart. And the guy was really bright. I mean, as I say, went to Harvard at age 16, which, I mean, I went to Harvard at a much um, uh, later age. Well, I mean, 21, it's not that much later, but still. Um, and it's very overwhelming and it's scary. And, and you know, that he was too young probably to go then. And uh, while he was a, a freshman at um, Harvard, didn't he participate in some kind of strange, almost abusive uh, uh, psychological research project with other students? Even before the research project um, with the great professor, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in quotes, <laughs> um, I, I, the audio, you have to like, if you saw my fingers, I'm doing the quote marks. Yeah, exactly. Um, even before that, and I don't understand why Harvard did this. I mean, you know, every institution has its fallibilities. They put all these freshmen that were at that young age, they put them in a separate dorms. And so they thought that maybe they would, you know, socialize better that way and kind of keep them separate. I, I don't know. I'm not a sociologist, but I would, I'm not sure why they did that. 
because it would anyway for him Kaczynski who was sort of a loner and kind of weird anyway um that made him isolate even more and then when he got into this this research project where um the great professor you know really was pushing him to like and it was, I'm sure it would be a kind of project that would be completely outlawed at any university now, pushing him to try to make him break, to kind of see where a human being would, would break. Um, yeah, that I'm sure that had a detrimental effect. It's no excuse though, obviously. And those who would say it is, I completely disagree. So tell us a little bit about how uh, the project worked. Kaczynski would go into a room, and I've seen the, the actual tapes of this. Um, they're short videos that I've seen, where he would go into a room, he'd be kind of all wired up. I mean, not, I mean, actually, you know, taped up, because you can see the tapes. So, I mean, wired up like that. And the questioner would push him with questions about, um, like, a thesis maybe that he'd written on a, on a topic. And push him with questions about really saying how stupid he was and, you know, he didn't know anything. Remember, this is a guy who has been told he's bright, brighter than, he's got a kid brother, uh, brighter than David all his life. And he's been sent, he's just this wonderkin, sent to Harvard. And he's, and he, now he's told, he's told he's stupid, he doesn't know anything, his thesis is dumb. And it's not that it really is. But the, th the thesis of the research project is to knock people down and to just make them feel as stupid as, as anything and just to push them to the brink to see how, when they'll break. I mean, it's really about making somebody break. And Kaczynski sort of famously um, never targeted Harvard in, a, in his bombs. He targeted other universities, but he never targeted Harvard. And the thinking is, and I do agree with this, that he never targeted Harvard because it would, to target Harvard would be to admit somehow that Harvard had broken him and that he was trying to get back at the institution that had broken him. I think that's, I think that's a good analysis. Um, speaking of uh, universities, um, his, as I got refreshed with the book, his first bomb was uh, at a university, uh, but was not actually mailed to the university. It was brought, I forget which one it was, but it was brought to a university and uh, had an address on it that was not even in the same state, uh, and a return address and um, no postage. And of course, they opened it at that particular university, but I had to kind of chuckle in a strange way that the address on that first bomb was designed to go to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, where my dear daughter, Emily, uh, just graduated from last year. Wow, no, that's, that's, oh, that's awful. I mean, it's scary, you know, wherever you lived. Um, and there were some things that were, you know, sort of like hit me because I was in San Francisco at one of the times when he was bombing and it's just like, it was frightening. You know, if you lived in any of those areas where he, when he was, when, but you didn't know it was Ted Kaczynski, but where the, when the Unabomber was, you know, currently bombing, it was frightening. You were scared to open packages. Um, 
he didn't want to open anything because you didn't know whether that could be from the Unabomber. And uh, bright as he was, he didn't uh, seeming to have really a lot of success after he did uh, graduate from Harvard. No, you're right. I mean, so yeah, so moving forward, so he left Harvard, he got an advanced degree, he actually taught for a while, and then he just left his post, you know, abruptly. He, by all, by all accounts, he was not a good teacher. I mean, this is not a guy who has very good interpersonal skills. He left his post abruptly. And then, yes, David did help him both with the purchase of his mother, help with the purchase, I mean, with actual money, but David helped him uh, get this cabin and, and, you know, get it to where he could, was habitable at least. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've seen the photos of the cabin and, you know, what was left of it. Uh, but yeah, it was just this little cabin outside, outside of Lincoln, Montana, which in and of itself was very remote. And he, that's, he said what he wanted to do. He, it was close at one point to David, his brother. He was close at one point to his mother and father, although that dissipated um, quite, you know, quite readily. Um, there was a very strange relationship there. But David turned out to be kind of a normal kid and a normal man. So, you know, it's not as if it's just all in the same genetics because one brother's fine and the other's the Unabomber. Um, so he gets his cabin, he's there. And as you said, the methodology of depositing the bombs is by mail, uh, by bus. I mean, and then he complains at one point, you know, I had to pay some, you know, 200 bucks for whatever, for 135 bucks, whatever it was, for a bus ticket to, you know, mail to get my bomb there. Jeez Louise, really? You're complaining about the bus ticket for your bomb? Wow, that's some chutzpah there. <laughs> anyway, but you know, he's just, at that point, he's completely, his mind is completely warped and he's, he's on this it's in the, it's all in the manifesto but it's as you kind of wrapped it up that that technology writ large is destroying society and he the great ted kaczynski with his great genius that he has been told he has by everyone except that experiment at harvard um can save society and how can he do that? Write a paper? Write a dissertation? Teach a class? No! He can do it by bombing people and getting their attention that way and then writing this manifesto that will be published in the New York Times. And that's how he'll save society because everyone will read it and will follow his manifesto. And as you point out in the book, that as the case dragged on and on well, over the years with several ebbs and flows, that um, and at one point was even upstaged by the Oklahoma City bombing and uh, Timothy McVeigh, that after a while this case uh, pretty much lost its cachet, didn't it? That was the other interesting thing that I didn't realize, of course, when I started researching this, is that because the Unabomb case went on for so long, 18 years. And because there were, in that 18 year period, there were periods of it at, at one point, I believe, six years in between bombings. I, I think that's right, six years. 
it was a dog case if you were an FBI agent. You did not want to be put on the Unibom case because no one had solved this case and it was going nowhere fast. And so you didn't want to be put on the Unibom case. It wasn't a sexy case. It wasn't going to get you the plaque on your wall that you like to have because FBI agents, like every other agent that I've ever worked for when I was a prosecutor, wants to get that plaque when they've solved a case. It looks nice on your wall. There wasn't any Unibom plaque coming anytime soon. So it wasn't a sexy case to get. No one wanted it. It was a dog. And then it was so much red tape and you were going to go through all these, you know, tips that were coming in from the call line at one point, hundreds of them, and they went nowhere. So you're going to be walking around the streets or doing all this stuff. For what? It wasn't going anywhere. It was the dog done. But dog that it was, um, the case went on over those 18 years and various uh, task forces would uh, come and go. And uh, there were uh, hotlines and uh, tip lines set up uh, and calls coming in, you know, th uh, thousands of leads, quote unquote. And of course, each one of them would have to be run down uh, and investigated. And that was it. those were good leads. They were better leads than some of the people that were calling in saying, "Oh, I think it, my neighbor, my neighbor looks a little weird." You know, that could be you know the guy. But they had the call lines, and they at one point the FBI did something that the FBI doesn't usually do, which is come out and say to the public, "We need your help." And boy, even that was an internal battle because the FBI doesn't usually want to look like it needs the help of the regular citizenry. It makes it look weak, the FBI. And the FBI doesn't want to look weak. But it did that. I mean, again, these were things that the FBI was sort of forced to do along the way of the hunt. And again, things that you know are implemented now in the way that the FBI has made changes. I mentioned uh, Ted's brother, David, earlier, and obviously he features very uh, prominently in this story at several junctures. Uh, but I understand that you did contact him uh, for, you know, to ask for his participation uh, in writing the book. Is, is that true? David wrote me one of the nicest no letters, dec declination letters, I've ever gotten. I mean, um, I did write to Dave. Of course, I read, wrote to Ted Kaczynski, and he did not respond. Uh, but I also wrote to Charles Manson, and he did not respond. But I always write. I, you know, we always try to get the both sides. Um, but I wrote to David, and he wrote back the nicest letter. He didn't have to respond to me at all. I could have just thrown my letter in the trash. But he wrote back and he didn't just write a one line letter saying no. He just wrote back saying, you know, I've spoken about this and I really, um, you know, just don't think at this time that, that I'm going to speak more about it. But, you know, I really appreciate your writing and thank you so much for all you do. And it was just a very sweet letter. Um, of dec you know, it wasn't declination, but it was just a really nice way of doing it. And I just thought, what a what a good guy, you know, what a nice guy and good for him for what he did. That must've been so hard, you know, um, uh, I write about that in the book as well, but it just must've been just on a 
human level. I mean, it must have been really difficult, but he realized that the greater good was to do exactly what he did, and uh, he did it. The key, ultimately, of course, being uh, Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. This manifesto says, you know, machines are bad and going to kill society. Well, the fact that it was even published is a minor miracle because FC wrote to uh, wrote that he wanted to have this manifesto published. And it couldn't be in Playboy or The Esquire or something like that. No, they just write something nice to Playboy. But anyway, but I digress again. Um, so the FBI got together with the New York Times and the Washington Post. And this is at the very top level of all this. And this is amazing that these you know, organizations even get together at all. And they really had a debate about whether to publish this. Because of course, you know, the New York Times and the, and the Post, their position is, you know, we don't negotiate with terrorists. This is a domestic terrorist. And we don't know, and the FBI is agreeing along with this, this is the first take, that we don't know that whether we, when we publish this, that FC, this is how Unabomber was calling himself, is gonna stop bombing. And by the way, he, he says he's gonna stop bombing and killing, but he's still open to sabotaging. I mean, so even, and do we take his word for it? So the first take on it was, we're not gonna publish this. And in this very heated meeting, that was really, and the FBI stance was pretty much the same. We don't negotiate with domestic terrorists. So it really took um, the force of the FBI profilers to say, there's another angle of this, which is that we don't necessarily, and we don't believe that he'll stop because he probably won't, but we don't have any leads. Our leads are going nowhere, let's face it. And if we publish this, we'll get leads. We hope we'll get leads because there'll be something in that manifesto that someone out there will recognize. And if someone recognizes that, that will turn into a lead that so far we don't have. Nothing's out there. It's all evaporated. So it's worth it. Not the fact that we're believing him, but that we'll get a lead. And it was really the power of that sort of uh, aggressive persuasion of the profilers that made everybody change their minds and decided to actually published his manifesto. And it was. So once it was published and the newspapers hit the stands, who was the first person uh, to recognize uh, something in the writing, uh, the writing style of the manifesto that uh, was similar to uh, writings of someone they knew? It was actually Kaczynski's uh, sister-in-law, who he'd never met by the way, because um, Kaczynski had cut David's sister-in-law out of the family, out of his life. Because when David got married, that was the worst thing you could ever do. David, how could you do that? How could you marry? It's almost a sin that you're, you know, being with somebody. I mean, it was really weird. You know, it was very strange. There's a lot of strange stuff about that. But anyway, so the sister-in-law, who'd never met Kaczynski, but had read some of his letters to David, she was in Paris at the time. She read the manifesto and she said to, to her, her um, husband, you know, this reads 
a lot like your brother. And I think you need to read this and, and listen, you know, hear for that. And um, so David did. And sort of sadly, begrudgingly, slowly said to his wife, yeah, it kind of does. And I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's not, is kind of the way they were looking at it. I, we don't know that it's not him. We don't know that it is, but we don't know that it's not. There were, you know, he's such a bright guy and he speaks in kind of this, you know, very unique language, let's just say. There were just some unique phrases. And so they contacted a lawyer and uh, they didn't go to the FBI right away and who, you know, sort of helped them uh, figure out what to do. And eventually they were instructed and decided, which again must have been such a difficult decision, familial decision, to contact the FBI and just call that helpline source that I was, um, hotline that I was mentioning before. And they did. They, they took a little while to get through. <laughs> Unbelievable. But they did. And they got through to the right sources, some of the sources that are in my book. That, and uh, boy, the reaction when they finally got through to the right sources was pretty amazing. Like, we may have the guy through the language in the manifesto, just as the profilers who I just talked about in that high-level meeting with the FBI and the Washington Post and New York Times, had almost, you know, presciently predicted might happen, hoped might happen. I just can't say predicted, hoped might happen. And at this point, um, the book sort of goes into triple time. Um, you, you can't help really getting rolling in this and your heart pounding as you're, again, going along with uh, the folks who are going to get to the cabin, uh, going to confront a guy who could have guns, certainly has bombs, he's certainly nuts. And it, it just, again, I was so uh, caught up in the thrill of the chase. They didn't have enough for, uh, you know, uh, an actual conviction then. That took them getting into the actual cabin and then finding, you know, seeing there was a live bomb there, there were other writings, but it was enough to focus in on the cabin, you know, surveil it for a while, and then actually, you know, get in, make the arrest. And um, uh, a big piece of, of evidence, of course, that they were really trying to look for was the typewriter on which uh, letters and the manifesto were written upon, uh, because obviously uh, Kaczynski did not have uh, an IBM uh, computer and a printer, so everything was done on an old manual typewriter. Verona typewriter, yes. They found the typewriter. and. My main source, Patrick Webb, was one of the guys that was in there, because he, he's a bomb technician, and in there um, at that time, and was you know, walking me through all of the things that happened on that day. And it was a very exciting day, as you might imagine, for the FBI and for all those, for all those men and women that finally, you know, their, their hunt had come to an end. And uh, it was very exciting too because they had the warrant, but not enough to keep him. And he wasn't, of course, saying anything. So it was, you know, timing was just, and you know, the, the, the judge barely gave them enough to get in there because there were 
you know, linguistics. We're going to give you a, a, a warrant on linguistics. You know, it was really tight. <laughs> but Kaczynski was uh, captured without incident, um, charged, and did indeed stand trial, a trial which uh, was not without its strange moments as well. Kaczynski, and, and sitting there in the courtroom, he wouldn't even look back at his mother and, and his brother, um, who were just must have been going through hell. Uh, I have some scenes where the agents are talking to the mother and the brother and telling them what they're doing and every step of the way, and it's just... It's just awful. And at uh, one point during the trial, he brought the proceedings to a screeching halt as he surprisingly decided to plead guilty. Uh, it looked like one of his concerns was that his defense attorneys were trying to angle uh, the possibility of an insanity defense, and he was really upset about that and was very adamant, I am not mentally ill. The lawyers were saying, you know, we could try to go with a mental illness, you know, insanity defense. Um, we could probably work with something like that. And, he was, and they stopped it. That's it. I'm just going to plead straight up because I'm not. It was pride again, I think. Pride. You know, just like like not bombing Harvard. You know, not that I want Harvard to be bombed, but you know what I'm saying. It's just like I'm not going to say that Harvard broke me, so I'm not going to bomb it. Thank goodness, you know. But, I mean, just these weird, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but it was just strange stuff. And so Ted Kaczynski is safely behind bars in a federal prison somewhere where he will never see the light of day. And though he did not uh, give you an interview for your book, um, after reading your book and talking with you, I really feel uh, yours is the definitive book that people should pick up if they really want to know uh, the nitty-gritty, as you put it, uh, of the case and um, the techniques uh, of the FBI and how they brought this incredibly long and expensive manhunt to a successful conclusion. Netflix did uh, did a documentary about him recently um, that was more factually based. The, the, the Discovery did one that was not factually based that got Patrick Webb upset. Um, so, you know, we... My book, I really stick to the facts, you know, I, but still, you don't need anything more than that. This is a thriller ride. The facts are there. I mean, I just, I just couldn't believe that I got as lucky as I did to get the sources I did. And I think it's part because I am sort of part of the, you know, the federal family being an F daughter of an FBI agent and having been a prosecutor myself, I kind of speak, I, I don't kind of, I do speak the language. Um, so they, I, I, I am a little more trusted, um, than just, not just, but, that, but then a journalist coming in and saying, you know, I want to talk to you about a book. Well, I am sad to say we've come to the end of another episode of Murder Most Foul. And I really want to thank my guest, Lise Wheel, and for her sharing, uh, of her wonderful book, Hunting the Unabomber. The FBI, Ted Kaczynski, and the Capture of America's Most Notorious Domestic Terrorist, which he wrote with some help from Lisa Pulitzer. And uh, the book is available, I'm sure, everywhere. And I'm sure, Lise, that you also have a website. LiseWheelBooks.com, just my name, L-I-S-W-I-E-H-L, Books.com. Great. Well, again, uh, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, Lise, and um, I wish you good health and good fortune, and hopefully maybe we'll do this again sometime soon.
you too, to all of the above and more. And lastly, but not leastly, let me thank my listeners out there for tuning into uh, this episode of Murder Most Foul. Uh, past episodes can be found on the platform that you found this one on. And I hope maybe you'll also drop by my Instagram, leave some comments. Uh, always helpful. Also, if you have any weird uh, murder cases out there you'd like me to look into, love to do that. And the, my Instagram account is murder most foul, all one word, and the numeral four. Murder most foul, and the numeral four. Before I sign off, let me leave you with a few words out of the mouth of Ted Kaczynski. My motive for doing what I'm going to do is simply personal revenge. I do not expect to accomplish anything by it. I certainly don't claim to be an altruist or to be acting for the good, whatever that is, of the human race. I act merely from a desire for revenge. Of course, I would like to get revenge on the whole scientific and bureaucratic establishment, not to mention communists and others who threaten freedom. But that being impossible, I have to content myself with just a little revenge. bureaucratic establishment, not to mention communists and others who threaten freedom. But that being impossible, I have to content myself with just a little revenge.